Welcome to episode number 14 of our podcast series, The Paper Trail from the Netherlands Journal of Geosciences. My name is Henk Kombrink, and in my position as the editor-in-chief, I'm asking authors of papers published in our journal about the highlights of their research, but also the driving forces behind performing the study. Just to make research papers a bit more accessible and giving authors a platform to tell a bit about what goes on behind the scenes of writing scientific papers. Today, I'm talking to Tim Baers from Delft Technical University. Tim and co-authors recently published a paper in our journal about climate fluctuations and predicting stratigraphic response. The title of their paper is A Cyclostratigraphic Framework of the Upper Carboniferous Westo and Cleaver Formations in the Southern North Sea Basin as a Methodology for Stratigraphic Reservoir Characterization. Welcome, Tim. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> no worries. Um, congratulations for publishing the paper in our journal, and thanks for that. Um, before we dive a little bit further into what you actually uh, wrote about, um, I believe that this, this paper is part of your PhD, isn't it? Yeah, that's correct. So this is one of my uh, chapters in my PhD. Um, so I am currently finishing up my PhD thesis uh, at Delft Technical University. Um, and this is one of the chapters and I am basically investigating um, cyclic signals in low net growth reservoirs. So low net growth means relatively low sand content. Normally speaking, they uh, say roughly lower than 30%, but the idea is that you have a lot of floodplain material. Um, so I'm looking, so I'm looking at uh, fluvial reservoirs, uh, low net gross reservoirs um, with a lot of floodplain material. So then the idea of my thesis is what if we look at the paleosoils, the coal seams, the other floodplain deposits, and if we can use that to, instead of looking at sands and correlate and see how the reservoir looks like use the other way around, use the, the floodplain approach to see how the reservoir looks and um, see how much climate signal is stored in there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so this is only one of the chapters uh, <laughs> in your thesis. Um, exactly. Uh, but yeah, uh, th th this paper we are going to talk about it very much reflects what you just said. So uh, I think that is a, a good introduction. <laughs> Um, so so let, let's talk a bit about the, the Carboniferous, because the, the Carboniferous sedimentary succession, that's what you've used as a as a case study for your uh, methodology. Mm -hmm. um, le let's go back uh, a few hundreds of, mil of millions of years. And, and can you explain how the North Sea, which is your study area, uh, looked like at the time? Um, yes, I can. Well, uh, first of all, it wasn't the sea. So in, if you go to the area where we're looking at, so that's the intersection between the Dutch boundary and the UK boundary, but the whole area was basically, in my review, a, a deltaic fluvial flat plain where sediment came from the north. So you have the mid-north sea high and from Norway, you get sediment moving in. And then all the way down to where 
currently the or where the London Brabant Massive was, where basically it split up, and then from the west you have the sea coming in uh, with occasional marine uh, incursions moving in and moving out and basically flooding. Um, and in terms of environment, you have kind of swampy deposits which alter with small delta crevasses uh, and basically these stretch all the way up to the east even up to the Donetsk basin where we see the same similar kind of um, sediments but also marine incursions um, I'm not sure if you can correlate them correctly all the way up to um, to Ukraine but definitely in, in Germany and, and further away you find the same different names Marine yeah. excursions that was relatively flat, and once it flooded, it flooded completely, and then the sea came back again. Yeah. So and 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 we are in a in a tropical environment, aren't we? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Hence the 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 the, the swampy conditions. The, the swampy, wet, humid, warm conditions, indeed. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um. So so in terms of. Uh, your paper is really about trying to correlate these fluvial uh, successions, which I, is, if I'm correct, tend to be quite thick. Mm, yeah. Um, and, and so you're using a cyclostratigraphic approach. Is that is that the the, the best way to describe that? Um, yes, I think you can say that's the best way to describe it. Yeah? So. Um, what the Carboniferous and this part of the Carboniferous is known for is, is I think, the best word to describe in cyclotemps, the old term they used. And so that's, they differ everywhere, but throughout the whole time period, we see basically a cyclotem first described an alteration between sand deposits and marine deposits, basically. Um, and these differ where you look, but in the area where we're looking at, it's described as a coursing up sequence. So you start mm -hmm. with a, a shale, it increases a bit more sandy until you get a sort of deltaic or crevasse play on top, and then it's capped by a uh, coal in an ideal sequence. That's what the previous research back from the 90s or uh, the 60s described. Um, but um, so that was the initial idea to start looking at this. Uh, this case study, uh, because there were already reports that it was quite cyclic with these cyclotemps. Um, and it basically consists of yeah, coursing up sequences. So that's why we said, can we use these coursing up sequences? Are they correlatable? How correlatable are they? And can we can we use them to, to increase a, a frame or make a framework to correlate the worlds? But uh, as you describe in your paper, um, cyclostratigraphy using climate forcing um, to, to try to explain stratigraphic successions is normally done in in marine and lacustrine environments, and it, yeah. it's a bit less common to do that in a fluvial succession. So, what is the kind of drawback of of trying to apply that technique into uh, in a in a fluvial setting? Uh, the, so the biggest difference between a fluvial setting and a marine setting is, I think, the internal dynamics are way more chaotic or stochastic. Yeah? So if you would ex imagine a seafloor, everything would be relatively constant. And if you would have an increase in sedimentation, you would have it everywhere. Well, if you would imagine a, a fluvial plain, river, 
flowing at spot A, it doesn't mean that if you increase, for example, runoff at spot B, you would also see a change in sedimentation. So there is also a what they call an autogenic, a local component to it. So there are local variations while they're upstream or downstream, depending on what the, the mechanism is. There can be, for example, changes in precipitation runoff base level, which causes the internal system to change. And so there is a extra level or um, the, the signal, the, the climate signal, if it's preserved, it's extra uh, shredded in this way. It, it, it's more complicated it's than... more complicated. Than, yeah. yeah. And, and was that the main driver to look at a relatively no, low net-to-growth succession because that signal is maybe preserved better? Yeah, the, the signal, the ID, and that's the idea of my whole thesis, is that the signal where the sedimentation is more constant on the floodplains, the signal is better captured. Hey, if you're going to look at the paleosol, you're going to have a better, or at the coal seam, you have a better image of how climate looks and how the climate signal is stored than if you're going to look in a sandstone, for example, because these are more direct, fast deposits, usually. Um, which also tell you a lot of interesting things, but mm, the climate signal is often better stored on these flood plain deposits. Yeah. And so, reading through your paper, I see that you 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 made a quite an extensive correlation uh, using uh, almost up to twenty wells, if I'm correct. Yeah, I believe there are nineteen wells in there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So. And, and, and the thickness of the succession is is um, about, about 200, 200 meters? 200, 250 meters, depending on where you go. So there's a slight thickening trend towards the south. Yes. On average, 200 meters. So so how did you get a, how did you kind of get started to, to to try and correlate these 19 wells for such a quite a, a thick succession? How, how long did that take you? How, and what kind of were the decisions you had to make? Uh, it took me quite a while. Um, now, so so what I did is I started with can I find these um, cyclic repetitions? So before I started correlating and before I started doing anything, I, I just started to see can I characterize these these uh, repetitions? So first, without looking at correlation, the wells in one D, can I draw in, for example, where I think the boundaries are? Um, do I can I identify the course of sequence? Can I see differences in that? Uh, so what I did is test for the 19 wells, and I think I ended up with a total of something like 350 um, individual cyclic um, blocks. Let's let's call them that. Um, and then I started to see, okay, can I classify them? So we we have the ideal course and upward sequence with a crevasse plate topped by a coal, uh, but that's not always the case. We also see, for example, that the crevasse plate is missing or that the coal is missing or that we have a coal seam which is split and you have two small successive coal seams, which if you think about it in this, this local component and this big alluvial plane makes sense, right? Because if you have a crevasse plate, it's not everywhere. It's maybe a couple of kilometers wide, but it's not going to span over 15, 20, 40 kilometers. So we won't expect that if you're going to trace this crevasse play, you're going to trace it along all 19 wells. And similar for coal seam, I think the calculations are that there have an, a lateral 
width of about 15 kilometers based on literature. So I would also not expect that I can trace a call scene everywhere. And these things are also known to split. So instead of approaching it in a way that we correlate a crevasse play or a call scene uh, with one of each other, we're trying to see, okay, where are these individual blocks? And can we use that to correlate? Uh, so I can say I can correlate this block in well A where it has a perfect example with a crevasse and a call, while in the other spot we're missing the crevasse and we have a call, and in well C we have a double call. Fine by me. I know it can change, so I can correlate that. And and that is also the explanation to or that is also how you describe different types of cyclotems you have been um characterizing it like it's it's not one ideal succession it is just a, a mix of different scenarios that make up exactly. one yeah so uh indeed i i made up seven different types of cyclotems i frequently found so the and or classes and i tried to put each cyclotem i identified in one of the classes and yeah. then you see you have your ideal succession but the ideal in literature describes the session is really not the most dominant one and that you see is that the most dominant one is actually where the crevasse is missing which makes sense because these are yep. not everywhere and that is yep. more a fine shill where it is really less pronounced yeah so 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 you did this in a, in a fully kind of um manual way but you also used uh, a semi-automatic approach can you yeah. explain a bit about that yeah well, um so there is always a lot of interpreter bias in correlating, right? If if I would let you do the same exercise, you might find something else. And if I would let you identify the boundaries, there's always a different boundary. And you can always argue I would place it one meter higher, one meter lower. So what we try to do is also make a, uh, we call it a semi-automatic method, where we set, we have a, a, a small method of, to our best effort, identifying breakpoints where these cycles are, and then just correlate them based on a, a horizon. So what we did is we used something uh, called a deviation curve, which is basically a, a mathematical uh, approach or transformation of, uh, we use the gamma ray as an input lock um, to show where breakpoints are. So. And the, 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 the great thing about this deviation curve is it identifies breakpoints uh, which are um, relative and not absolute. So um, if you would have a course and upward sequence from chill to a bit more chill to silty, um, and you would compare that to a curve going from a gamma ray curve going from chill to silt to sense to coarse sense, if you look at it by eye, of course, the, the the more pronounced one will be easy to identify, while the less pronounced one you would argue a bit. And with the deviation curve, what it does is it takes them both equally and it says, yeah, this is an equal heart rate point. Yeah. And and um, you you do describe a, a few differences between the two approaches you've yeah. taken. Uh, uh looking at it now now that the paper is finished that the research is done what what kind of methodology would you recommend uh people uh, to use uh i would say that really depends on what 
kind of goal you're after, right? So if you want a really detailed correlation between two wells, I would say do it manually. But if you want to just a first effort um, analysis and you want to throw in 50 wells and you don't have, uh, let's say, three months time to correlate everything, uh, then you throw in the, the deviation curve, and you uh, do a small comparison and within half an hour you have um, a solution. Not yeah. saying that it's accurate, but it's more accurate than, for example, biostipper fee. Um, in a way that, or at least the resolution is higher. I wouldn't say it's more accurate, but the resolution is higher because these, in this case, these cyclotems have an average of 11 meters. So if you use different um, stratigraphic correlation methods, for example, biostography operates at, let's say, 50 meter or chemostography, something as well. So you have more tie points. So you would get a a different view, uh, yeah. which has a relatively high resolution. And you can compare the two others. Well, if you would really want to know where a sand goes in which stratigraphic zonation or or level you would want to have that, I would say use a manual uh, approach. Yes. Yeah. Um... You yeah. You mentioned biostatigraphy, and 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 uh, I read that your results kind of correspond to the biostratigraphic zonations. But in the Carboniferous, yeah, is your kind of biostratigraphic control, and you're already alluding to that, is your biostratigraphic control of, of that much of an accuracy that you can actually use that as a, as a calibration? Well, um, yes and no. It's, so what we did is we used bio, first of all, there are some, like every method, there are some setbacks, right? So the resolution, the biggest setback, I would say, the resolution of biostography is lower, let's say 50 meters. Um, and the way we did is we use them because there are not that many other tie points we have. So you have 19 wells, how are you going to align them? Uh, there are some lithostratigraphic or uh, yeah, lithological tie points. Um, but these are even on a, a lower resolution, so let's say 200 meters. So we use that to first align the wells, then use the biostography to further align the wells. Uh, so say this should be roughly there. And then we threw out the biostography and we started correlating. And yeah. if it was not matching biostography, we shifted wells up and down. And then afterwards, we again, looked at it and see how was it matching with the biostography. And there we saw that it was between 10 and 30 meters. And for each case where it was really, really um, high or large offsets, we went back into the biostatographic reports and you could see that you can always point a cause why it was a, for example, discutting or, or, or different species which were correlated. So um, together, they uh, are a powerful method. Yeah, I see what you mean. Um, and then, so 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 once you you kind of completed the correlation in 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 the two different ways, uh, so you you identified, if I'm correct, two zones within this 200 meter interval that are characterized by higher net to growth, so more sandstones, isn't it? Uh, yeah. So what we did is we then, um, we were talking about local components and, and more outside basin-wide components, autogenic and allogenic. What we did is 
to try to filter out these local components and throw these 19 wells on a 1D average. So use the, um, the cyclotrons we have as a framework as basically seeing them as timelines, taking the average of these 19 wells and seeing based on the gamma ray, uh, a, a vertical proportion curves, uh, curve where we say, um, what's the percentage of this cycle in, in amount of sand, amount of shale, amount of clay. Um, and there we see that if you line everything up on average in that 1D, we see two phases where we have uh, increased net growth levels. Yeah. And, 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 and how do you, oh no, playing advocate of the devil, mm -hmm. if you would not have applied your correlation methodologies, would you have identified these uh, zones with higher net growth regardless? Or, or was it really something that, that came, only came, uh, became clear after you did the finished the correlation exercise? Um, so we did that too. Uh, what we did is we also uh, did the correlation without or did the alignment without any correlation based on the cyclo temperature. So we, we take one marker and we um, align everything based on that. So it doesn't matter if the correlation is right or wrong, doesn't matter if it follows the biostigraphy or the cyclostigraphy. And there we see similar-ish trends, but the resolution right. is way lower. So I could then say around this 50 meters or 175 meters, uh, there's an increased chance Well, with the um, other resolutions, I could say within these three cycles or within these three. Um, so the resolution is a bit higher. Yeah. So in, in a way, that should be the the main driving force to, to kind of justify using this, this methodology, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. yeah. I see what you mean. What about if 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 someone comes to you and and with a with a succession a fluvial succession but with a a slightly higher net growth compared to the one you've used now would you still be comfortable trying to apply the same methodology because if I'm correct you more or less rely on if if you focus on the on the on the finer lithologies like the 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 calls and and the, mm -hmm. the, the floodplains. Is that, is that really the limitation of applying this? You need the low net to gross environments? There is a, a break point uh, in there uh, at that in a sense that if you have too much sense, yeah. uh, floodplain-wise, you have more gap than records. Yes. Um, so that makes it more difficult. Still, you can do a bit of correlation, but the resolution just goes up. Yeah. Uh, or, yeah, uh, goes down, sorry. Yes. Um, yeah, understood. But then, arguably, you can also say the other way around. If you already have enough sense, would you need this method to correlate it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think it is fair to say that, yeah, if you're becoming more proximal, like the, 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 um, the resolution of the technique or the, yeah, the, the amount of gaps. Yeah, it's exactly. becoming higher, yeah. hence it will be diff more difficult to, to find a, a correlation. <laughs> yes, and that's also what we see in the correlation itself. So, uh, for example, these these higher net growth intervals where we have stacked sand packages of, let's say, three cycles. Um, yeah. 
in my correlation. I put dotted lines there because I don't exactly know. That's just an educated guess for me. Um, yep. And in these intervals, I don't know how it sits, but below and above, I'm quite confident. So I would say within a range of three cycles, I'm confident that this should be it. So it's also depending on the thickness of your net growth, high net growth interval. Yeah. Uh, thanks a lot for your um, explanation, Tim. Um, I believe you've now, you've already kind of finished or written up your thesis, and and you're currently um, working on something else. Can you can you yes. tell us a bit more about that? Because it seems uh, something completely different from what you did during your during your PhD. Yeah, so so I'm currently finishing my PhD. I've written up my thesis and and, and defending soon. Uh, I'm currently doing a postdoc, uh, basically on carbon capture storage and the potential of a new way of carbon capture storage in the Netherlands. So um, there's a lot of uh, organic waste material, for example, agricultural waste material, which gets burned. And with the burning, you bring a lot of CO2. You emit a lot of CO2 and via process of, of um, electrosis, um, you can also capture the CO2 in sort of artificial pool. So you have something which is called biochar, Bio, biological charcoal. Um, and currently I'm working on an, an index of where to potentially store that in the surface. For example, can we put this artificial coal back into the old coal mines in Limburg, or can we put it in the salt caverns like they want to do with, with uh, hydrocarbons? Or for example, we have a lot of um, sand pits uh, along the rivers in the Netherlands. Can we put it in there? Because they currently putting in dredging material, so why not? Something like this. Yeah. Um, so I'm investigating the potential there. Something completely different. Yes, <laughs> and it's it, but it's still it's it's interesting to see that you're still dealing with the carboniferous in a way because yeah. you may actually want to put back that charcoal into uh, <laughs> the, the famous coal succession in the Netherlands, exactly. isn't it? Put it back where it <laughs> came from. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so there is still a bit of a link. <laughs> So thanks, Tim, um, for your time. I, I think this was a, a really nice, nice podcast. We've we are very close to half an hour, so I think this is a, a good moment to round off. Um, thanks again for your time, and good luck defending your thesis in October. Great, thank you for having me. Thanks. Okay. Um, um, so yeah, this was episode number fourteen of our um, podcast series, the Paper Trail. Thank you for listening and goodbye.